Welcome to The Rational Egoist. I'm your host, Michael Leibowitz. One of the biggest impacts on my thinking and my character has been the writings of one Nathaniel Brandon. And I've yet to do a show where I've really gotten into the ideas and works of Nathaniel Brandon. And being that I wanted to, I figured I could have on the guy who quite literally wrote the book on Nathaniel Brandon. And that is my regular guest, Mr. James Stephen Valiant. He is smiling brightly at you all right now. And interestingly, he, of course, is known for his critique of the character of Nathaniel Brandon. But by and large today, that's not what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the virtues of his writings. Jim, welcome back. Oh, well, it's always great to be here, Michael. My, my true brother. <laughs> Happy to do this with you. And yeah, I, I have, obviously, you can see one of the posters behind me, <laughs> Passion of Ayn Rand's Critics, where I severely criticize both his memoir about his relationship with Ayn Rand, both versions of that memoir, and his actual behavior back in the 1960s as a human being. And um, you know something? One of my very best friends in the whole of my life is a psychotherapist. And uh, you know, as buddies are, we're very close. And as buddies are, we talk about things. And I once made a comment, hey, you're a therapist. You should know better. And he sharply looked at me and he said, wait a minute psychologists are human beings too <laughs> that's totally unfair jim that you know i can't i i urge people to introspect i teach them how to introspect i do my best to introspect but am i going to catch everything no guess what i'm a human being too and that lesson kind of landed with me there and i and i kind of see obviously we have to distinguish the psychological work of nathaniel brandon his substantive work in his field of specialization from his personal life or from the way he describes his personal life. Those are two separate issues. If you were to sell, tell me some fact like, you know, it's raining outside, I, he's of the credibility that I would still check <laughs> to see if the ground is wet. But the, the, uh, the, if he's not telling me something about his personal life, uh, Nathaniel Brandon, if you're look, reading his books, The Psychology of Self-Esteem, especially his early books, in my view, the earlier his books, the better. They're filled with all kinds. Of, first of all, let me just say, The Psychology of Self-Esteem to date, I think, is still the best description of human psychology that has ever been offered by a theoretical psychologist. Let me just repeat that and underline that so that everyone knows what I'm saying. The best description of human psychology yet rendered by an expert in the field, a psychologist, is I think still The Psychology of Self-Esteem by Nathaniel Brandon. It is an amazing work. It had a huge impact on me as well. Jim, hold on one second. Hold on. Because it's going to get to the point where they don't need me anymore because you're just going to come on. And say, <laughs> you're, you're getting way ahead. I got my list of questions. Okay, I'm sorry. all of them. We can't have that. Have a bad habit that way. I should actually see a therapist about that. <laughs> while it may be true that they don't need me, I don't want that to get out. <laughs> I need you very much. And I need you exactly to point out that kind of thing for me. So uh, my first question, let me, I'm going to read it verbatim. And I often don't read verbatim, but it's funny. I said, Nathaniel Brandon's biggest contribution was in his work on self-esteem. 
What is his theory as it stood when he published The Psychology of Self-Esteem in 1968? So that's my question. What is What was the theory that he put forth in 1968 in the book, The Psychology of Self-Esteem? Well, there are two major aspects to that theory. And uh, uh, one is the what might be described as the revolution in he was a leader of the revolution in cognitive psychology that took place in the 20th century. And uh, of all the various theories of psychology, from the Freudians to the Jungians to the behaviorists to you name it, uh, the cognitive uh, psychologists, theoreticians, people like Abraham Maslow, who was a great influence on Nathaniel Brandon, uh, agreed, Ayn Rand and Abraham Maslow agreed, Ayn Rand, the philosopher, and the psych psychological theorist Abraham Maslow agreed with a very important proposition. Thinking matters. That the cognition that we do, Ayn Rand would jokingly put it, you imagine studying the subject of human consciousness without considering their rationality, without considering the fact that they right. think. And it's insane. It shapes our consciousness. What we think and what we do because of what we think will shape our consciousness and that emotions are implicitly evaluations evaluations that may have occurred in childhood on a subconscious pre-verbal level or later on they can be the product of ex a series of sequential experiences or they can be the product of trauma uh, they can be the product of good, secure attachment with your parents, or they can be the product of bad. Uh, he, no, he's not one of these attachment theorists, guys, but you get the idea. Yeah. Uh, the, the, what he's saying is when we're young, we draw conclusions about the world around us. And those conclusions help shape our very consciousness. And each of our emotions is, in effect, an evaluative expression of something that we've already automatized and built into our consciousness. So emotions reflect evaluations. And he further makes the point that the single most evalu important evaluation that we make in all psychology is about ourselves. That that evaluation colors and shapes everything. And in fact, his basic approach to neurosis, uh, psychological problems shy of psychosis that involve hallucinations and may have organic brain causation we're just talking about neurosis here you know the, the problem is that all normal people have, <laughs> if i can put it that way the the, the normal anxiety say social anxieties and so forth that people feel all that is really a crisis he says uh of self-esteem now over the years i've thought about that and i'm not sure that every psychological problem has its roots originally in self-esteem, but every psychological problem will have self-esteem implications. Necessarily, it will be involved. He goes to the point of saying all anxiety, all anxiety, in effect, is a self-esteem issue. But if you think about that for a second, it makes perfect sense. I mean, if someone's pointing a gun at me, I have a very specific fear. I have a very specific fear about the gun. And when the gun goes away, the fear goes away. It wasn't me. It was, the, it was something very rational for me to fear out there. On the other hand, if I walk into a cocktail party and I just feel this weird sense of anxiety, nothing in there is threatening me. And yet I'm already feeling anxious and scared in a way. Uh, it's something I'm bringing to the party. It's not an object there. It's my self-evaluation. Am I, am I going to make a fool of myself? Am I going to embarrass myself in front of a girl? Am I going to say something stupid? Are people going to think I'm, ah, the, the social anxiety is actually, if you think about it, a crisis in self-esteem. 
maybe not a crisis, depending on how bad the problem is. Right. But the point is, it's an issue that anxiety has its roots in self-esteem. And so uh, it is our, and if you think about it, really, it is uh, a very fundamental test. Ayn Rand, of course, is very famous in her books, The Fountain and, and The Atlas Shrugged, for defending uh, the concept of self-esteem. So again, it's it's hard to parse things out uh, in terms of his influences. But he certainly took the concept and developed it beyond anything that Ayn Rand had. And this marriage of cognitive psychology and an appreciation for self-esteem did have a very powerful impact in the field of psychotherapy. Right. Suddenly, by the 1970s, people were saying, hey, no, self-esteem is an important thing. He helped put self-esteem on the map as sort of a, a barometer of psychological health. And that it surely is. Look. My evaluation of myself is something I can never escape from. And I know yes. the facts. So I either evade the facts and I'm aware of that evasion, right. or aware of the negative facts and it's going to affect me. See, right. he's not one of these people who believed that self-esteem was just, oh, you love yourself because indiscriminately. Yeah. Say uh, nice uh, things to yourself. Say nice. No, 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 no. Self-esteem is earned. You can't lie to yourself about the reality of something. One of the things. You know, I was talking to Nathaniel Brandon in my interview with him at his home. I don't know, this was more than 40 years ago. And he put something in a way that I still, a formulation I still use all the time. He's, and we were talking about sex and promiscuity. And, he, and I said, well, you know, uh, you know, sex is a great thing. Uh, but he said, yeah, Jim, but if someone's walking across uh, on the other side of the street that you had a relationship with, and I'm your best friend, and you're not saying, hey, I'm proud to have slept with that person. You better think about it. If you really, if you really, uh, are you proud that you had a relationship with that person? Yeah, that's, that's now that's something that I've carried with me in my life because I'm going to be, be honest. There have been a couple of times in my sexual history where I thought I did something that really didn't reflect well on my self-esteem. Not that I lied, not that I, you know, it wasn't a criminal <laughs> interaction or something, but it was something where I would say to myself, gee, no, I really ought not have done that, if that makes sense. Yeah, right. The noise there. Uh, I, I ought, really ought not to have done that. And that did reflect on my self-esteem in the sense that what was I getting from that conquest, if you will? What was I getting from that score? Um, it, I was assuaging something in my self-esteem. And so uh, Brandon was very aware of, and was good. I, I think I was, what was I, 17 when I met him and I had this conversation with him. Uh, that was right at the correct age for me to be influenced by these psychological ideas. And he very much uh, put me on the track of being a constant and active introspector, a constant and active introspector. Along with Abraham Maslow, he did something revolutionary in psychology. He said, we shouldn't be looking for all the diseased psychologies to develop our theory. We should be looking at the healthy, normally functioning psychology. That should set the standard. That should set the standard. Is your cognition actually operative? There's another aspect of cognitive psychology that's so revolutionary. One objective barometer for your mental health is the objectivity of your cognition. Is it impairing, warping, twisting the way you're thinking? If so, I'd attend to that emotional issue, that psychological issue. Uh, is it causing you pain, discomfort, 
why it's not something is hurting you. Is it causing you an inability to cope? You know, or is it making you less resilient to the problems that all of us face in life? That's when a psychological issue becomes a psychological issue. There have to be caught, and you can see it objectively in its effect on our ability to think, our cognition, and our ability to act, our ability to cope with stressful situations. And those are the two areas which can objectively measure what people had thought was really nothing you could objectively measure at all psychological health because consciousness has a function it's a tool it's our tool of survival and when looked at as part of a natural uh, and this is the way he talked about it he was biocentric he said when you see human psychology in a biocentric context you understand that uh, that all of our emotions are serving us uh, in our task to survive and be happy or we have a problem and we've set it against ourselves he was fully aware, for example, that um, analogously to physical injury, a psychological trauma can leave scar tissue. And it's that scar tissue that becomes the problem. You know, sometimes we'll get ill and it's our body's reaction to the illness. You know, we'll get an infection and we get a fever. It's the fever that's going to do organ damage, not the infection. Uh, and sometimes it's our body's reaction that is. And, and with trauma, you see, you can live with the scar tissue for the psychological scar tissue for years until you deal with it. But that scar tissue isn't helping your life, isn't serving the biological ends uh, that consciousness uh, should be serving. Um, and that's how he conceived psychology. And it was a, a dramatic change for me. I, I have to say it opened my eyes about psychology even more uh, than let's well, much more than anything I'd ever read up to that point. And it stayed me with too. me. As I read other stuff, I realize that uh, uh, Brandon's description of psychology is basically correct. Uh, uh, and it's the best one out there. If you want psychology, as Ayn Rand famously said, is at the, it's dawn. It's in its uh, pre-Socratic, to compare it to philosophy, it's still in its pre-Socratic era, yeah. awaiting a Plato or an Aristotle to come along and tell us what's what. But the closest thing so far to a, a, the correct description, it seems to me, of human psychology that a psychologist has yet offered, and a complete, I mean, in a thorough way. Yeah. There are certain psychologists, I think, who've done outstanding things in specialized areas. Professor Edwin Locke, for example, the objectivist uh, 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 psych psychologist and therapist, his recent book on free will, for example, his work on intelligence, his work on uh, motivation and goal setting, uh, or uh, the late Edith Packer, I think she was a brilliant psychologist and all of her essays um, about introspection, about the nature of emotions, I think add important refinements to this general theory. Uh, but if you're talking about a description of human consciousness as a whole, the psychology of self-esteem is still your best bet. Isn't that crazy coming from it, me? It's it's awesome. You know, the one you said that we can't escape making that evaluation of ourselves. And that's very important because Albert Ellis said that we need to stop judging ourselves in order that we, we have to get over the idea that we need self-esteem. But Nathaniel Brandon, and I think rightly said, we don't have a choice. We're going to make that judgment of ourselves. And it comes down to, are we going to make that judgment? Is it going to be an accurate judgment? Are we going to live in such a way as to warrant a high appraisal of ourselves? And something else that you said about the, the emotions are a response to values. 
when I read that for the first time, and I had previously come across similar things, and I and Atlas Shrugged, for instance, Ayn Rand talks about it, but the way Nathaniel Brandon drew it out and, and really delved into it. And what it reminded me of was my studying of economics, where they talked about prices are signals of how much something is worth in the economy of where energy should be directed and whatnot. And I thought, you know what? Emotions are like the internal price signals that tell me what I'm valuing. They, they might be implicit values or subconscious values, but if I paid attention to my emotions, I could realize what I'm valuing. For instance, I might say, I don't care what that guy thinks of me, but if I'm getting angry at it, well, you know what? My emotions are telling me something very different than what my, what my mouth's saying. So Brandon, his theory was that self-esteem was the combination of two things, right? And he got this from Ayn Rand. As far as I know, he got it from Ayn Rand, was that it was self-confidence and self-respect. And he said, it's your, your belief that you are able to do things, able to accomplish what you want in life, able to achieve your happiness, and that you're worthy of achieving it. And that, that self-respect, worthy of achieving, what I found amazing in, in what he said was, it doesn't even matter if your ethical theory is correct. If you have a wrong ethical theory, and you violate what you think you should be doing, you're going to suffer the consequences. Now, I, I, I want to go a little bit further, and I know I'm talking a lot, but I want to get your take as a prosecutor especially. As a criminal attempting to change my behavior, in tandem with Dr. Stanton Salmonow, Brandon helped me so much. And that's why regardless of how many people hate him, I really don't care. And I don't know him personally. I'm not trying to defend him. But the psychology of self-esteem in his essay in The Virtue of Selfishness on the Psychology of Pleasure, where you could literally set your consciousness against yourself if you developed the wrong values. My values were such as I thought fighting was a good thing. Hurting people was a good thing. Standing up and always ready to go at it. You know, these are good things. So what happened when I started to change my behavior, because the, the, the behavior changes more quickly than the implicit values change, I would feel guilty for doing what was right. And I started to understand that. And Nathaniel Brandon helped me with that immensely. So I just want, so my next question to you ultimately is I've said how the book has helped me. How has Nathaniel Brandon helped you? Oh, wow. Wow, well, you went so... Say <laughs> all sorts of things. All, each of them important, filled with all kinds of stuff we can we can talk about. Well, that is the virtue of the book, The Psychology of Self-Esteem, is it's so integrated, an integrated view of psychology. It, it's amazing. To, 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 you know, well, first let's start with uh, what you said about Ellis. Yeah. Absolutely. Ellis is this humanist cognitive psychologist who Brandon actually debated in person in the 1960s. But uh, uh, let me, the guy, other guy I mentioned, Abraham Maslow, he died in the wool altruist. You can't read his stuff without finding it polluted with all kinds of anti-self stuff as well as pro-self stuff. And so uh, Brandon is unique even among these other cognitive a behavioral psychologists of the middle of the 20th century, among whom he was one. And he did have, in my view, a much better understanding 
of the importance of self-esteem. And if you ask me personally, then I'll have to sort of give you an autobiographical confession, won't I? I myself have had, and I think I'm still to some degree, but mostly <laughs> I've conquered it, uh, self-esteem issues. Christian, I was raised a Christian by wonderful benevolent parents who thought uh, the world of me and gave me a secure background, constantly complimenting me, constantly bucking me up. They were wonderful parents, listening to me too, giving me the attention of their disciplining criticism too, which is part of, that's another thing that's part of love, by the way. A child will feel it if their parent doesn't give a crap one way or another. Being critical is a one way in which children perceive that they're cared about. Isn't that interesting? I, absolutely. So it wasn't my parents' fault at all. They were wonderful parents. It was other experiences, including my, I was much more religious than my parents ever were, including my early childhood studies in Christianity. I would read the Bible and I would be told how rotten and awful I am and how I shouldn't be thinking well of myself. Um, and I would literally talk about it twisted religion Christianity is, I would, in the privacy of my own thoughts as a child, I would think I got to stop thinking about myself so much. I got to stop. I got to stop putting myself first. As a child, I'm telling myself that I remember explicitly reading Christian literature and then walking away thinking, yeah, I better not be selfish. I better not be self-centered, better not be self-oriented. This had a... <clears throat> a bad effect on my psychology. I was insecure in places I shouldn't have been insecure. I had guilt from Christianity where I had earned no guilt, whatever. I had a hard time making special orders at fast food restaurants, as my wife will tell you. I have, uh, you know, I have my, my best friend, you know, he took me to uh, a psychological retreat once and using me as a guinea pig, I go, we need a problem. I'll guinea pig. What, what's your, uh, we'd be in therapy, Jim. Can we have an issue? Oh, my friend raises that. I know the issue. Why does Jim, who believe believes in a philosophy of rational self-interest, put other people ahead of himself even when he doesn't have to? I don't get that at all. Uh, and uh, fair enough, <laughs> I needed and perhaps still need to work on the self-esteem damage that Christianity did to me. And uh, I think that one of the reasons why, frankly, objectivism was even more interesting to me than all that political stuff that Ayn Rand was teaching me. And all those economists and political theorists that we talked about in our, in, in our earlier talks why objectivism had that appeal was that it had direct personal relevance to me, uh, to myself. Now, Dr. Ellis, I want to say to you that you cannot avoid this sort of thing, the self-estimate thing. It is inescapable, inescapable. One of the big differences that we found between veterans of World War II and veterans of the Vietnam War was that in the cases of the Vietnam vets, they had a much, much higher rate of um, prolonged post-traumatic stress disorders, suicides, drug addiction. And the difference that's been noticed is an internal one about how good they felt about what they were doing. Our veterans came home after World War II and they were hailed as heroes. You were the good guys. You saved the world from the Nazis. 
the, I had a buddy at the DA's office, maybe my best friend at the DA's office, a little older than me, he was a Vietnam vet. And two tours of duty, three bronze stars, he gets home at LAX and two teenage girls, you know, kind of hippie-like girls, but just walking by him, just a baby killer. And there he is in his full uniform. His first stop in the LAX was into the men's room to get into a t-shirt and jeans and throw his uniform away. Now, don't tell me that self-esteem didn't make the difference between the vets of World War II and the vets of Vietnam. When one is questioning what they did is good or bad, am I good or bad? And the other side is saying, oh, I was the hero, I saved the world from Hitler. That's gonna have all the difference in the world. In dealing with the same sorts of stresses, watching your buddies get killed every day. Okay, that's a serious stressor. And yet your ability to cope with that stress will dramatically uh, be different depending on your self-esteem, but depending on your moral evaluation of your own behavior and your own role. Um, so yeah, self-esteem is an inescapable issue. It happened to be <laughs> a, a primary issue for me. And so that's, I think, if I were to say still a thank you to, and I, I you know something, you make such a great point about reading people for their value as opposed to evaluating them as a person. If I were to say to you, John Stuart Mill should be dis uh, dismissed as a thinker because you know he was mean to 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 cats. <laughs> You're just making, pulling something out of the, the sky. I don't know that he was mean to cats. No. I have no reason to believe that you actually. <laughs> Let's say that I had proof that John Stuart Mill was mean to cats. And I'm not criticizing utilitarianism. I'm not criticizing his epistemology. I'm saying he's mean to cats, so you can ignore his arguments. That would be a total ad hominem fallacy. Yes. We should never confuse the person with their work. They stand independently. The fact if a person was a rotten person, a good person, or a, some mixture in between, it's irrelevant to the quality of right. what. Let me give you a literary example that maybe our objectivist friends could understand. Dostoevsky, I suspect, was a very unhappy man. Dostoevsky, I suspect, did many things that we as objectivists would not have morally approved of. He was a Christian conservative <laughs> for his context, and he had a very dark sense of life. Uh, he had a very Christian view of man. Uh, and so uh, it's very opposite from objectivism. And yet Ayn Rand ranks him as one of the two or three greatest novelists who ever lived because he had such a powerful way and this is connected to psychology. Of, I was of, thinking that. I was just thinking it. Example of exploring psychological themes within his novels. It influenced Ayn Rand. It, uh, imagine how, the Fountainhead is brilliant. In some ways, I think even better than Dostoevsky at handling psychological themes. But she was taught. She was taught by Dostoevsky, and she's willing to admit that she learned a lot about how to how to plot to tell a psychological theme in a novel from this guy who has a very opposite viewpoint and a very opposite sense of life from Ayn Rand herself. So we can get value from a book, great value from a book, even if we have quibbles about parts of it, and even if we think the guy behind it may have had some serious problems. You know, uh, Ayn Rand had as much reason to hate Nathaniel Brandon as anybody, <laughs> right? right? But. Uh, but she, and this is very telling to me, she never took his writings 
out of her books. Right. The virtuous selfishness or capitalism, the unknown ideal. She put the disclaimer, you know, in the in the books following their break. Nathaniel Brandon is no longer associated with me or with my philosophy, but she didn't remove his writings. Those essays are brilliant. Which brings me to my to my oh. next point or my next question. Well, go ahead. Well, well mysticism, and I want to recommend uh, a couple of those articles to anyone who hasn't read them. Uh, psycho, uh, mysticism and uh, mental mysticism. health versus mysticism and, and, and uh, 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 altruism is one of the most important things you you'll ever read promise you promise you promise you promise you um the psychology of pleasure oh wonderful absolutely seminal stuff um now as i say he was learning from the best he was still a very young man and it's hard sometimes to distinguish what is him and what is ayn rand because he was so influenced is sure. the ayn rand when he was a teenager growing up in canada he practically he memorized the fountainhead the most psychologically insightful novel ever written and he memorized it you could give you could play a game with nathan he would boast you could play the game with him you could give read a line before a sentence read a line after a sentence and he could give you the verbatim line in between without missing a word wow anywhere in the fountainhead so effectively he memorized the fountainhead and as a young man, you could tell he was struggling to understand it. Uh, but before he ever met Ayn Rand, he was already deeply uh, imbued with the ideas of the Fountainhead and Anthem. Um, and Ayn Rand helped him a great deal with a great many of his other ideas. I want to remind people that uh, the idea behind this, this, this theory that he has, it really comes from Ayn Rand. And you can tell that not by just look, reading The Fountainhead, uh, but you can tell this by reading Ayn Rand's unpublished journals, some of which have been published. Uh, okay. of can you hold on for one second, Jim? Because I want to ask you about that. Because I don't disagree that the fundamentals of Brandon's writings are implicit in Atlas Shrugged and in The Fountainhead. But two things. One is this, is that the idea that because they're implicit there, reading his subsequent writings is unnecessary. Well, Ayn Rand certainly thought it was worth putting him in her books. So he must have added some value to the other things. But, but uh, Ayn Rand's essays, if, if, look, most of what she wrote about in the 60s and 70s in her nonfiction was simply an explication of something she'd said in the Fountainhead or Alan Shrugged. Sure. So, are reading those essays worthless? No. No. That, so much there are still essays to be written about what you can implicitly find right. in her and that will go on i hope for some time uh and they are drawing out implications that were not obvious to me and yes. you could read you could read atlas shrugged three four five times you'll still be mining it for gems yes and you won't want to put it in together in some specific context yeah. so uh, no, of obviously. Yeah. More than that, she herself recognized. In fact, when she broke with Nathaniel Brandon, she specifically said that all of his writings that had been published in her magazines were still approved stuff. Yeah. She in the virtue of selfishness and capitalism. Absolutely. She was also his editor. I mean, they co-edited those journals together. So uh, it's it really is hard to separate out her influence from his. Nonetheless, no doubt. Days are as essays they are valuable yes. and are in my view correct yeah <laughs> and so and besides we have another good thing that's happened uh i don't 
mean to say anybody's death is a good thing, uh, although I'm not particularly mournful of it, but we all have to go. Uh, Nathaniel Brandon can no longer profit from our buying of his books. There was a point in my life, Michael, where I, I'd already bought some of his books, obviously. And uh, uh, there came a point, though, where I looked at him so negatively that I did not want him personally to profit. And so I wouldn't buy or I would, you know, find someone with an old used copy somewhere so that he wouldn't profit. I actually had that in my head. That's how negatively I think of him as a human being. On the other hand, now that he's dead, ladies and gentlemen, right. Out there, do yourself a favor by the psychology of self esteem, the psychology of romantic love, even a book like uh, The Pillars of You Know. That is Jim, a- you're doing it again. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> to give now, I also think that as he went on, he a lot of corrupt ideas came in. I okay, we're I- gonna get to that, we're gonna get to it. I promise you we're going to get to it. So I I just want to say that that while it's true that a lot of his stuff, most of the stuff in, say, the psychology of self-esteem is derivative from Ayn Rand, there is stuff in there that I don't think you're going to find in Atlas Shrugged. For instance, his division of social metaphysics into social metaphysical types. Right. I I think that has value. His uh, differentiation between suppression and repression. I don't think you're going to find that in, in Atlas Shrugged. And he does a very good job of clarifying the, the argument for free will. I, I find that his explanation of it, while I think Rand, it was definitely implicit in Atlas Shrugged, he develops it very, very well. Well, on that last one, I'm going to... Uh suggest to you that I think his development is largely Ayn Rand's. I'll take it. I'll take it. Maybe. I'm just saying, but in the psychology of self-esteem, it's yeah. new. Yeah, exactly. It's where you get it. You're not going to find it. Uh, right. Else. Even if I say, that, well, that one he got, I think he got from Ayn Rand. But for example, the types of social metaphysicians, even the full development of uh, the concept of psychological visibility. He takes it in places where Ayn Rand did not go. Right. A whole development of it. Now, I think his other inspiration here is Aristotle, or the second self stuff uh, from Aristotle. A friend is a second st- self. Yeah. So he says as much. Yeah, he, and he says as much. Yeah. Um, so I think that uh, that there he's, but it, but uh, honestly, his develop that's him in large part. Uh, both the the types of social metaphysicians and the full theory of psychological visibility. Those are two areas where, because I happen to know the <laughs> the details on this, those are two areas where I would credit him as having dev- gone beyond what Ayn Rand herself had said or thought. Um, and there were areas like that, um, uh, no doubt about it. Um, and um, but so much is, you know, like I say, if you read Ayn Rand's philosophical notes, she back when she's still in her twenties is, is saying that her emotions are her instincts and emotions are a kind of unrealized reason, a kind of subconscious thinking that's making becoming manifest and isn't aren't values aren't the source of my emotions and and she's even asking am i unusual in that my values my thinking is so perfectly consistent with my emotions am i a rare weirdo or is this should be with people 
no reason emotion dichotomy because emotions themselves spring from our thinking. And if we can get our thinking straight, know where it came from, then we can know where our emotions came from and there could need be no reason emotion uh, dichotomy. <clears throat> um, furthermore, in developing her characters as a novel, she was very psychologically aware and I think way more sensitive than even the novelists that she admired in terms of how thinking and values are shaping the very characters and emotions of her characters. You can see, for example, the background stories she gives to Ellsworth Toohey or Gail Winan, uh, it, so or even some of the minor, more minor characters, where it's clear she's very aware of something that really isn't normally noticed in character development in a novel. How early experiences lead to early conclusions, which lead to emotional results, which lead to the character, which lead to their destiny in the story. And she saw that, it, again, Aristotle is the person who's, I think, originally forming her basic outline here. Yeah. She's filling it in with some amazing psychological detail that dramatically inspired. That's why so many objectivist intellectuals are psychologists, psychotherapists, um, no doubt about it. Uh, uh, I, When I was 17 years old and an undergraduate at the University of California at San Diego, I was asked to uh, buy a college newspaper, a campus newspaper, the California Review. They asked me if I would be willing to contribute. I didn't volunteer. They walked up to me and said, hey, we know you're one of these crazy types. Would you be willing to go to interview uh, Nathaniel Brandon at his home in Beverly Hills and we'll run the interview in our very first edition? I said, I'm happy to do it. So I took a photography photographer buddy of mine up there and Nathaniel Brandon agreed to, to the talk. Now, between the time he agreed to the interview and the time I interviewed him, Ayn Rand died right in that wow. month, right in that month in between. And so I just happened to be the first person to interview Nathaniel Brandon after Ayn Rand's death. And when Ayn Rand's death happened, I was emotionally affected by it. I'd never met her. I was living in California and I was still a teenager. I was emotionally affected because she had had a big impact on me. I was like, wow, you know, I, the, when the news came on the radio, I was stunned and frozen. Um, and, um, but I thought, aha, this is my opportunity to maybe ask him about Ayn Rand in a way he wouldn't want to, wouldn't want to have said before. And boy, I was right. You know, I talked like the first part of the interview, I get to his home, beautiful home with this in Beverly Hills with a magnificent view of downtown LA and uh, it's just astonishing. And uh, the first part of the interview was all about psychology. And uh, then I say, may I ask about Ayn Rand? So she just died. And I, I knew that they'd had a controversial relationship about which I'd done all my homework, by the way. And he said, sure, within limits. That was his exact re response to me. <laughs> you can ask about Ayn Rand, within limits. And so we spent the rest of the interview talking about Ayn Rand. And at the end of it, I invited him to come give a speech at my university. And he jumped on it with the following. Yes, indeed, there's been something he's wanted to say. So I got the impression that he was waiting for Ayn Rand in order to actually make a bigger statement. And so I arranged the audience hall, the down at University of California, San Diego. I got 600 people in the audience. Uh, we gave him a good audio visual recording of the event. Uh, when he first gave the speech, I introduced him. I arranged it. I admit it. The speech, the benefits and hazards of the philosophy of Ayn Rand. I was the one who introduced him. Um, and 
he insisted that I read the questions from the audience. I thought, well, why don't they just raise the, their hand and you can call on them until we're out of time. And he said, no, 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 no. I want them written and I want you to read them. Uh, okay, if that's what you want. <laughs> and so I read the questions. There was only one that I screened out. And as we're walking back to it, I had dinner that night with his wife and his nephew uh, early, before the speech. And then we're walking back after the event to his car. Uh, he asked me, Jim, were there any questions you had to screen out? And I said, just one. Uh, whether you and Ayn Rand had had an affair. And, and, you know, he knew from my context that I knew in 1968 that he denied ever having an affair with Ayn Rand, publicly denied it to the world, yeah. lied to the world, not just Ayn Rand for years, but lied to the world about it immediately in the wake of that. So, of course, I thought it was obviously false. You denied it. Besides, it was irrelevant and unintellectual as far as I was concerned. Anyway, what does his sex life have to do with <laughs> the philosophy of Ayn Rand? Yeah. <laughs> and, but he gave no answer. He turned his face, literally turned different shades of color <laughs> before my very eyes. And so I could tell there was something else going on there. But this is before Barbara Brandon's book had come out to tell the world there had been such an affair, too. So I was already alerted to the fact that this guy, there's something, but I knew that I couldn't figure it out and that it wasn't any of my business. Any, my 17 year old brain was in no position to, <laughs> to figure out the morality of this thing <laughs> on my pay grade at the time. <laughs> so I just went on and continued to my studies. And it was literally the biography by Barbara Brandon, then the memoirs of Nathaniel Brandon, and then the third step in the line, I wrote a critique of those, posted it online in the year 2000, when the internet was still a relatively young thing. <laughs> I serialized a critique of the Brandon biographies online, but I didn't tell Leonard Peikoff. And I'd been by that point for many years, a student of Leonard Peikoff's. Um, and, uh, but Leonard Peikoff, getting wind of it, uh, calls me up and, uh, I have to, my wife meets me at the door. I'm coming home with the DA's office. You're going to want to answer this call. And I pick up the phone and I'm, I don't know what Leonard's going to say to my even addressing the Brandons like this. Cause he said he wouldn't even read their books. And so I did, I wasn't going to tell him, but I had to, I didn't know Ayn Rand. I had to read their books. I mean, nothing could stop me from that. And I had to make my own evaluation. Sure. So independent from Peacock, uh, uh who's, you know, friend and student I was by that point, I, I published this Peacock said, no, I love it, Jim. Um, don't worry. Uh, it's no problem. In fact, do you think you could use Ayn Rand's unpublished notes about Nathaniel Brandon? Well, let's take a look. Because he already suggested you're right and you don't know how right you are, was sort of already the suggestion. And then when I got up there, he kicked the doors open. And this was before any of Ayn Rand's unpublished uh, material really had been published yet, except for, say, the early Ayn Rand. We were, <laughs> I mean, I started the work on it, really remarkable, uh, but he let me have everything. He let me look at all of her notes. He let me look at all of her unpublished correspondence, all of it, the little love notes that she and Frank used to give to each other, <laughs> all of it, all of her photos, memorabilia, and those notes about Nathaniel Brandon. And I learned a great deal about, um, the whole situation. And I realized that Nathaniel Brandon and even Barbara Brandon had systematically misled me about their relationship with Ayn Rand and the break. Now that is indeed conceptually different, but not honest because there's two things I wanna say that are very important. 
As Nathaniel Brandon's later psychologist, and it pertains to his work as a psychologist, the substance of his work as a psychologist, that's why it's important. After the psychology of self-esteem, he wrote a couple of books in the 70s, Breaking Free, The Disowned Self. One of them is basically just a dialogue of therapy on the subject. Another is more of a, a theoretical discussion about repression, rep repressing your true self. What, in effect, objectivists, because of Leonard Peikoff's later uh, course, Understanding Objectivism, would commonly come to understand is the syndrome called rationalism, which involves emotional repression, concepts being floating, etc. cetera. Uh, he says, boy, I had, to, oh, I had to rediscover myself and reassert myself because I had sublimated all that was me under the, under the pressure of being one of Ayn Rand's students and being the big great spokesman for Ayn Rand. Well, when I found read those notes, I found something more disturbing still than the revelations about his private life. He lied to, about Ayn Rand in that very respect in those books. Those notes that Ayn Rand had were the result of psychotherapy that Brandon solicited from Ayn Rand. And you can tell from the notes that Ayn Rand was resistant and reluctant and only talked into that such therapy and he's a therapist right and during the course of this therapy with Ayn Rand he's systematically lying to her about his private life as a therapist and Ayn Rand is the one telling him as you can read in those notes stop disowning yourself Nathan to use the title of his book stop trying to be some objectivist hero some platonic or Kantian vision of what you think an objectivist hero should be be yourself be authentic. What do you want? Be in touch with your emotions. You're too emotionally repressed, Nathan. You've been repressing your true Nathanness in order to be an objectivist. Stop, stop, stop. They said it's all one more thing. Okay. They said it's all about jealousy. And of course, it wasn't. Ayn Rand actually in those notes suggested that Brandon have an affair with someone else. Yeah. So Brandon, when he presents his argument against emotional repression and his argument in favor of uh, not being a rationalist, <laughs> that's a bad formulation, his arguments against what we would call rationalism and rationalist repression actually came from Ayn Rand. In fact, she'd had that whole syndrome worked out. I could tell with the terminology. Okay. Rationalism, repression, all of that is what she's advising him not to do. And then he tells the world in his Reason Magazine interview, in, in these books, The Disowned Self and Breaking Free, that he was the repressed victim of Ayn Rand's psychological oppression. <laughs> Just the opposite. That's the big lie that is built into his work as a psychologist. And then the other criticism I'd have is that as time went on, he more and more went off the subjectivist deep end. Very last thought, and then I'll let you have this. He would say things like, Jim, I've got to look at this in a purely clinical way, not in a moralistic way. Uh, so I look at things as healthy or unhealthy, uh, even if they're conscious and volitional, rather than good or bad. And I said, well, wait, 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 wait. If it's conscious and volitional, Dr. Brandon, um, I still call him doctor, and even though his PhD is a... Anyway, uh, Dr. Brandon, <laughs> uh, 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 I, I'm sorry if it's cautious conscious and chosen then it has a moral dimension no matter what the psychological dimension also is and he well that's moralistic 
I think it's a general complaint about Ayn Rand, which is strange because she was a moralist. And so he becomes more and more morally neutral. But you can understand why a personal scoundrel would become more morally neutral, but you don't understand why someone who makes psychology, clinical psychology, their business would become more, less and less. But actually a good therapist in my experience is constantly evaluating and encouraging evaluation on the parts sure. of clients. So I, I want to back up a little bit to Breaking Free and the Disowned Self. Two books I've never read. I've read a, most of his work. I've never read those two. And I'm going to ask you to do something that might be a little bit difficult. Because in these books, he's lying. Well, I, I, I take your word for it. I have, I have no reason to doubt you. You've always been honest with me. So I'm not going to say, well, I've never read them. I don't know. I believe you. Okay. That said, the theoretical stuff in those books is it's that accurate. Largely. Okay. Now, some of it vague. It's completely not. Um, this is a great example, too, of what I'm about to say. Nathaniel Brandon had the first course on the basic philosophy of objectivism that he gave at Nathaniel Brandon Institute. Right. You know, I bought them in in vinyl LPs. Obviously, I was you know too. I was born in 1963. I'm much too young to to have taken any of the NB cor NBI courses live. But I got his original course on vinyl LP, and you, you take the entire course recorded on old those old record players. And I listened to him. And then, of course, in the 70s, Leonard Peikoff, with a real PhD, <laughs> uh, did a, a course on objectivism, which is, in my view infinitely better in its structure, organization, formulations, integrating things together. There's a sort of haphazard way Brandon goes about it. His formulations are less exact. Similarly, in his books, The Disowned Self and Breaking Free, he is psychologically approaching an issue that Leonard Peikoff in understanding objectivism would explicate the details of in far better theoretical uh, detail, uh, understanding its psychoepistemological and psychological origins much better. So if you want to understand the phenomenon that I'm talking about here, I'd send you to Peikoff's understanding objectivism rather than breaking free of the disowned self, just as I would send you to Leonard Peikoff's 1976 course on objectivism before I would send you to Nathaniel Brandon's. Peikoff is just a far better and more accurate explicator of Ayn Rand's ideas. Nathaniel Brandon, because of his own personal motives about things like this, couldn't be clear about what Ayn Rand was saying. And I think in the heart, in his own heart of hearts, too. And with respect to the earlier one, he's not a philosopher. He, right, he was a psychologist. Yeah. So you can understand a little less philosophically integrated or a little less uh, aware of the details of the history of philosophy uh, a, a presentation. Right. I'll forget what I don't, what, what I think you, you can judge him on is the fact that he has this incomplete presentation of his own problem that Ayn Rand was observing, blaming Ayn Rand for the problem and how he had to overcome it, and then it not being a full exploration. Now I can see why he's slamming on the brakes to not fully understand the very phenomenon that he himself suffered from. Task one, Mr. Psycho, every psychologist I know subjects themselves to the most scrutiny. Right self-psychotherapy they possibly can and it's essential to do that he clearly and i could tell this now in retrospect even as i was talking to him in my interview at his home uh that he sort of slammed on the brakes when it came to self he wasn't very good at self-judgment he one of the great things i got from nathaniel brandon was the lesson to constantly introspect one of the things i came to know about him 
was that there were whole areas of his life where he refused to introspect. Okay, so after those those books, Breaking Free and Disowned Self, the books that I have read subsequent that, that I found, I actually found m- very helpful. The Psychology of ro- Romantic Love, The Art of Living Consciously, I thought were phenomenal books. Honoring the Self, I thought was a good book. Um, How to Raise Your Self-Esteem, that's more, I, I like it, but it's more of a, a workbook, basically. Yeah. It, it, what I cannot say, what's that? It's we called it at when I was working at Lazy Fair Books, we called it the Objectivist Psychotherapy Coloring Book. <laughs> Fair enough, but I I found it helpful. Now <laughs> you, you get to the by the time you get to the six pillars of self-esteem, right? Yeah. The six pillars of self-esteem I found helpful but watered down. It was as if he started to cave to the pop psychology establishment. Yeah. But my question to you is the later books, while I, I get your critique of them, what I want to know is, do you think they're helpful at all? Well, I think they could be helpful, but to some, I mean, it depends on your, if you ask if a book is helpful, like I say, the wonderful thing is, is that these people are now uh, in the past. I mean, we all, we all have our limited time and must go. And now I think use those books uh, as they're helpful to you, but understand, I think we now have a better understanding of their uh, wider context. And I think I'd say that about any book, uh, read the book, but understand its wider context. If there is one that helps you understand its wider context. That is to say, I noticed the same thing you did that as the 80s and 90s wore on, he was he went over into the pop psychology and in many ways over the subject of his deep end. You know, he dismissed, and talk about failing to understand certain things. Uh, he, he dismisses Ayn Rand, who, dis, who he says unfairly dismissed ESP. Now, this was before, you know, the Cornell studies had absolutely refuted ESP. <laughs> he did that in the benefits and hazard, right? He, he yeah, got on about the ESP. Did and it right or any? I think he repeated it also in his memoirs. Okay. Um, now Ayn Rand's got a closed mind, don't you know? Now, of course, one of Ayn Rand's fundamental epistemological insights is that consciousness must have an identity. Far from being a disqualifying feature, it's a necessary element that you can't right. skip. Consciousness is an active process, a specific form, and so uh, the identity of consciousness is a critical concept for him to just slide by. Ayn Rand's alleged dismissal of ESP, which he thought deserved investigation. <laughs> what is in effect an arbitrary assertion until you get some solid evidence. He thought you should keep an open mind to do. Another objectivist idea that he wasn't too clear on, or give another one. He, uh, you can't validate axioms. And I said in a way, you can't logically prove axioms. I validate them every time I open my eyes. Silence. He still thinks Peikoff's wrong for using the word validate when it comes to axioms. I have to be able to validate them. And the validation is no more than opening my eyes and seeing existence. I don't, I can't logically infer them from something else. No, but that means I can't logically prove something, not validate. But he Mm -hmm. said axioms are unvalidatable. Well, that's a concession to the mystics as far as I'm concerned. So I have fundamental things where I think he increasingly got, uh, and, you know, with something on ESP, could he really have missed the identity of consciousness point with Ayn Rand or the it's arbitrary until you have some evidence point? Because both of those points would be essential to talking about 
ESP, extrasensory perception. Oh, you mean perception without a causal means is how Ayn Rand would immediately see it. And she would say, I, I, I'm going to need some evidence before I even treat that as a non-arbitrary right. positive. And Brandon doesn't even discuss that. Now, could he have been ignorant of those things about Ayn Rand? I have a hard time thinking of that. So is he changing? Is he no longer? Because he would say, I still basically believe in Ayn Rand's philosophy. I still believe in reason. I still believe in egoism and self-esteem. Uh, I still believe in her approach to realism. Oh, well, if that's the case, then why are you slamming her like that on ESP, for example? Um, and that's just one example. Uh, so as you go further into the 80s and 90s, uh, yeah, he drops off, in my view, in his worth, the, the quality of his work. So I would recommend to people, I would actively recommend, actively recommend Psychology of Romantic Love, Psychology of Self-Esteem, Pillars of Self-Esteem. And that's about it. I'd absolutely recommend. Hold, hold on, hold on, hold on. I, I think you, I think you, 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 I want to make sure you get it right. I think you meant to say, and tell me if I'm wrong, that you would actively recommend the art of living consciously, but the pillars is oh, where. Oh, okay. that, that's what I think you meant. I just want to make sure that it, 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 I don't want you to be misquoted. I missed, you know, something in the last two weeks. I have misspoken on multiple occasions on podcasts, and it's absolutely mortifying to me that i'm saying exactly the opposite <laughs> you know how that you know that phenomenon where one you're saying one thing and the absolute opposite comes out <clears throat> i was about to say something about the you could see the decline in, in the pillars yeah. and yeah. i jammed that in my head with yes thank you yeah. um thank you <laughs> Because it's actually connected to it. It's that art of living consciously thing that is all what introspect the very introspection that is so important that he helped me see that you have to do. What is your emotion saying? And even with his therapeutic techniques, they think there's some look, sentence completion technique was one of these therapeutic techniques he he explored. Uh as I think he's making the turn to the subjectivist pop psychology side. Nonetheless. Is it helpful? I mean, uh, I, I can see it being helpful. I can see it being useful. At least I've done it. I, I did them multiple, multiple times, and, and I found it helpful. So you see, I think it could be a very helpful thing. Um, I think there are all kinds of psychotherapeutic techniques, though. That's just one example. Sure. But uh, so, if you're asking me, do I think sentence completion is a valid psychotherapeutic tool? I would say, yeah, I think if it's for the right client, in the right case, it could probably be a very, very useful tool because what it does is it helps us live consciously, draw out the implications that uh, uh, you, you know in that are there in our emotions. Sometimes, see, most of the time when I have emotion, I can usually tell you why I'm sad, why I'm angry. It's no problem. Right. It's not like it's a great mystery most of the time why I'm sad or angry. There are occasions where I have a repeated emotion or a pattern of emotions, and I can't quite put my finger on it. And when you can't quite put your finger on it, you need to have some means of introspecting that'll right. draw out what was clearly subconscious and maybe even pre-verbal. And that's why you can't put it in words because you never did put it in words. It happened when you were a kid. And so if we can now find a way to put it in words, as, he, as Edith Packer said, I think wonderfully, uh, 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 
if your emotion could speak, what would it say? You see, and both of them are trying to get you to talk, give words to this, which is absolutely critical. The essence of emotional introspection is just that, finding the conceptual evaluation behind the emotion, even if you hadn't fully verbalized that conceptualization when you made it. And that can be tricky. And that can be tricky. Ah, yeah, I remember that happened to me when I was five years old. And I conclude that's exactly what I concluded. But you didn't realize that's what you concluded. But you can see, oh, from that feeling, that feeling tells me that that's what I concluded. Um, Boom. And uh, I've had that experience and (laughs) myself. (laughs) And so any of these techniques that help us to verbalize our emotions and get us to habituate and get more comfortable with that inward glance uh, is all to the good. So the kind of value you can find in Brandon is enormous. I think psychology is an enormously important subject. I think it is can dramatically improve your happiness, your life, your, your, your everything about your life. And, you know, a lot of it is that it, we are at the dawn of psychology. You know, uh, uh, the psychologists I know try to distinguish things like life coaching, which is all some people seem to need, from real psychotherapy, which yeah. involves deep introspection yeah. and sort of emotional surgery. Right. If it's short of emotional surgery, you need to do on your consciousness. If it's really just, oh, think it through. <laughs> That's more like life coaching. But we see we're we're neither ethics nor psychology are fully ob- objective sciences yet. Iran got us there, I think, with ethics. Nathaniel Brandon is getting us there with psychology, but obviously there's still more to do in both areas. We have to develop both the morally evaluative part and the psychologically evaluative parts uh, and understand their interaction. That's where I think the real money is in terms of what future we still have to figure out in the future. Um, I don't hard problem to consciousness for example i think it's an axiom so uh i think with the real challenge for psychology and philosophy working together is understanding the relationship um ayn rand did frankly got us much further in the on the ethical side her uh, article the psychology of psychologizing you know nathaniel brandon was not a very nice guy when he started to be a psychotherapist i heard personal horror stories from people who were in therapy with him back in the early 60s. And uh, it was intimidating. They said it was just a private session with them and uh, Brandon. It would be intimidating. It wouldn't be relaxed. It wouldn't be very fun. (laughs) And there would be times, I mean, one time a guy who'd been in therapy with, uh, uh, I won't name his name for his privacy sake, but an intellectual, by the way, our audience might know, uh, not Leonard Peikoff, trust me, but another objectivist intellectual, he just, he's in therapy with Brandon. He comes to a party and he sees Brandon telling this woman he's never met about stuff he told Brandon in therapy. Yeah, oh, that's, that's, no that's not good. About that's not good. things I told you in therapy. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Okay, Brandon, and then so Ayn Rand, when the break happens with Brandon, she hears these stories. Because nearly all of his abuses along these lines, which I think gave the objectivist movement a bad name early on, 
were his doing and his doing in private away from the eyesight of Ayn Rand in a psychotherapy context mostly. But then so she starts getting this horror stories about uh, how Nathaniel Brandon was very unprofessional and not very empathetic uh, uh, to many of his early patients. I say his early patients. Yeah. Uh, because I've also known people who were later patients of his. Um, and she in response, I think largely in response to what she saw, what she heard Nathaniel Brandon was doing, wrote an important article called The Psychology of Psychologizing. Right. Probably the best thing ever written on the relationship between morality and psychology, ever, uh, on the subject of the relationship between the two. And so from an ethical standpoint, she's given us, I think, the proper principles. I'm still waiting for a psychologist to do so from the psychological standpoint See, Brandon gives us a good description in the psychology of self-esteem and even concedes the area of morally, you know, attributable actions. We could judge. These are the kind of actions you can judge someone. Yeah. But you see, as a clinician and as a psychologist, his approach is a clinical one. But they need and they still need to talk about the psychology of moral judgment from the psychological aspect, it seems to me. People are feel guilty judging people. People feel guilty judging people. And it's psychology's job, it seems to me, to say, no, it's okay. You can call that guy an asshole because guess what? He was an asshole. You know, I, on that, I, I think that the the for me, well, not for me, I hate that saying. I don't even know why I said it. I think that the important thing when judging others is understanding the reason for judgment. It's not just to run around being high and mighty and, you know, morally condemning. Look at this jerk and look at this jerk. The point is, is I need to judge what is going to be good for me. Like I have to judge what I eat where I, I don't always do a good job, <laughs> but I need to judge the, what I eat, where I go, what I'm going to wear based on how it's relation to me. And it's this people are no different. If somebody's not a good human being, I need to know that to know their effect on me. But I want to get your take on two two things in the later writings of Nathaniel Brandon that I think are are good. I think the naming of the six pillars of self-esteem was excellent. There, it's the practice of living consciously, the practice of integrity, uh, the practice of self-acceptance, the uh, practice of produ productivity. I don't remember them, them all, but... I think that naming them was good because I think that they are sort of the pillars of self-esteem. And the other, which I found very helpful, with isn't original to Brandon. I think he probably got the idea from Carl Rogers, but the idea of the importance of self-acceptance, yeah. the idea that even if it's a bad thing about yourself, that in order to change it, you first have to accept it. See, yeah. I had a very hard time with this because in my mind, acceptance was saying it's okay but acceptance the way that they're talking about it is more of an acknowledging this is me it is what it is another saying i hate but it, it, it's there and by accepting it acknowledging it i can then work on changing it and that wasn't in the psychology of self-esteem but it was in how to raise your self-esteem and in the six pillars of self-esteem and what do you think about those things? The, the naming of the six pillars and the importance of self-acceptance. Well, you're right. Of the pillars, that's the one that Ayn Rand hadn't. <laughs> 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 so, 
they, they are central virtues. The, his pillars of self-esteem are, of course, pretty much an echo of some of the central line right. Rand. Sure. Integrity, independence, self-esteem. Right. You know, it's like he's giving recapitulating the psychological importance. Oh. <laughs> Hold on, let me get this. I can't get it because the way my thing's set up here. But it's the psychology of self-esteem. And in the back, they have the six pillars. I could have just looked for them instead of trying to name them off the top of my head. But you nailed one that Ayn Rand did not discuss because she wasn't a psychologist. And that's self-acceptance. She does, however, explore it in the article that I just said by implication. What she's saying is that emotions are not subject to moral evaluation. Ever. No. Ever. Right, right, right. What your emotion is. It's neither good nor bad. You're neither evil nor heroic for having an emotion. It's already there. It's automatic. It's outside the realm of moral evaluation, always and as such. That is the critical idea that permits emotional, psychological self-acceptance. So while it is not one of her central virtues, as most of his other pillars are... Uh, right. Choose to Ayn Rand. Uh, it, nonetheless, it's a concept that Ayn Rand herself thoroughly understood that people can be uh, only be morally evaluated based on their conscious thinking and conscious acting, and not on their psychology or subconscious right. condition. And in this sense, in her notes to Brandon, she explained self acceptance as follows: She said, "There are no emotional shoulds." That's that's I, I like that, and I, I personally, that, Jim. That's Ayn Rand to Nathaniel yeah. Brandon, personally. I've had so much trouble with that in the change process because I would still get emotions. And I went through this thing where, like, I'm reading about John Galt and, you know, Howard Rourke and Francisco Deconia and how they operate. And I'm, like, judging my emotional status based on not living up to that. And I had, and it's a mistake. And it's not... People sometimes blame Ayn Rand because that happens. And well, it's he, not her fault that I did that. Right? Character. She, yeah, she didn't preach that. It's no. something that I went through during the change process. But the idea of self-acceptance and like you said, not judging myself based on my emotions helped. Real quickly, I want to read what his six pillars are. They're living consciously, self-acceptance, self-responsibility, self-assertiveness living purposely and integrity and you're right they are by and large uh the the, the virtues that ayn rand talked about right self-esteem reason right purpose he sees the the role of purpose self-esteem right he sees the role of integrity and independence and really what he's doing is giving psychological uh sure. the, the psychological implications of those concepts so I have one more thing that I want to, I'm digging through my bag. I just got the warning that my computer battery is running low. So I've got to plug it in, <laughs> but I can do that while we talk. Yeah. So what lessons are there for us, Jim, in the fact that we have on one hand, Nathaniel Brandon, who is obviously a brilliant, brilliant man. There's no question in my mind about that. Memorizing the fountainhead as a teenager I mean, that that's phenomenal. The things he's written, I think, by and large, are great. Implications of Ayn Rand's work. To understand that Ayn Rand's work had such dramatic implications to psychological theory and psychological clinical psychology right. is a pretty smart thing. 
um, the, early on, he was he wanted to get Ayn Rand's word out there, and he was the first guy to teach Ayn Rand's ideas. Uh, he started the Nathaniel Brandon Institute. I'm not you're you're never going to hear me say that Nathaniel Brandon has done valuable things and did good things. And I'll also go further, my friend. He was in a very historically unique situation. He was a young man who had, in effect, been given admittance into the inner circle of Ayn Rand and was part of an intellectual revolution. Right. Philosophical H-bomb just went off. And processing the effect of that put him under enormous pressures. And when he one thing about his memoirs that I believe is that in the years after Atlas Shrugged, uh, in those immediate years, he felt enormous pressure uh, because there he is uh, being Ayn Rand's spokesman on the one hand and having to do it exactly right. And uh, and then all his own personal issues he's sure. putting aside. Now, as a psycho psychologist, a psychotherapist, I've, I find it on one hand, the circumstances and you could understand why he's shoving aside all his psychological issues almost repressing his true self. But again, that's not Ayn Rand's fault any more than her, no. you're not living, or me not living up to one of her heroes right. is Ayn Rand's fault, okay? That's, it's not Ayn Rand's fault. It's just the pressure of defending such radical, controversial sw- ideas with sweeping implications. And so in his own head, I can imagine the moment where he says, no, all my problems, they take a back seat, which of course a psychotherapist should never, ever, ever no. But uh, but the Jim, uh, this, this is the the thing that intrigues me, and it, it intrigued me ever since I read I read Barbara Brandon's book, um, the, the the Passion of Ayn Rand, where she talked about how he was consistently lying to Ayn Rand while he was writing. She, she didn't say this, but I know because of the timeline. While he's writing, the psychology of self esteem. So what I want to know from from you is what lessons are there when you could have such a brilliant guy with such a close connection with such a brilliant person as, as Ayn Rand? Clearly, he understands the the importance of living an ethical life, of not evading, of not lying. But nonetheless, even with that, all that understanding didn't prevent him from living an unethical life, at least up to the points in which you certainly cover in, in the passion of, of Ayn Rand's critics. I don't know what he did later in life. Maybe he turned it all around. I don't know. Well, his but, memoirs themselves are dishonest. So what he did yes. in the and and uh, he later, I, I, I think it was a progression downhill for him ethically as a human being. Okay. Evaluation. But what uh, lessons are there for us? For the, those, I mean, when you, because it's, it's so hard for me to reconcile that. He didn't, well, it's, you know, this is true for everyone. You know, I can give advice and I can be the biggest guy to give us a piece of advice and I can be the worst violator. I have found so many times in my own personal life that sometimes someone will be the greatest spokesman for a concept and then behind the scenes be the exact opposite. He did not practice integrity. He did not practice the art of living consciously. He evaded issues, like I was just saying, shoved them to the back of his head. Well, that's exactly what he would say, don't do. He's telling everyone else in his books and in his therapy sessions, bring that to consciousness. Well, he was, he, by his own admission, for years was pushing things out of his consciousness. And he wasn't practicing what he preached. If I tell you to 
live consciously, introspect. If I tell you to live up to your ideas and then he doesn't, there's, see, the lesson to draw here is do not judge a book by its cover. Do not. Covers will be uh, sometimes intentionally uh, misleading. Sometimes what people are saying, and this is, I think, maybe getting to it. Sometimes what they're telling you is sort of a projection, a projection of advice they're giving to themselves that they know they're not taking. I'll just leave you with that thought. So do separate your judgment of the person from what they say, because they can be very, very different. I think of, for example, the, uh, the playwright Henrik Ibsen. He had these plays that are all super about individualism and be yourself and self-expression and uh, talk about uh, breaking free being kind of a theme in his uh, uh, plays. Um, <laughs> Henrik Ibsen, they say, lived a very conventional life. He was a social conformist. <laughs> and he was totally just the, the average dude. In, in, or actually, he wanted to please the neighbor. And he's the guy saying, oh, no, you got to be yourself. You got to be <laughs> strike out there on your own. And so uh, I would just point out to people that uh, what the ar artist says is not necessarily who they really are. It's who they maybe want to be. Who they, right? And I, I think Ayn Rand is, a, is an, an interesting case because she actually is an expression of her philosophy. Her own psychology, her own emotions, her own art, I think are a faithful rendition of what she sincerely believed. And the sincerity of Ayn Rand is one of the more remarkable things. She demands that you live up to your ideals. She demands there be no theory practice dichotomy because from her own inside out, that's the way it feels to her. And so she's intolerant of any breach of integrity. And Nathaniel Brandon obviously could psychologically tolerate a gigantic breach of integrity for many years. And the lesson there is it, 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 you have to do it. You can't just say it. And you have to, you have to, yeah. So I would ask, you know, if I had Nathaniel Brandon, I could go in a time machine and I could and he'd be willing to do it. I'd have him on the couch and I'd have him do a few sentence completion exercises with me about honesty and romantic relationships, honesty about what you're thinking, honesty about your understanding of things, because those were things he was lying about. And so we'd do a little sentence completion about... Now, you're absolutely right. One of the things that Brandon says is that coercion, physical coercion, is closely related to dishonesty. It's sort of the next step away. What I'm doing is I'm, see, I could point a gun to manipulate your behavior, but if I don't want to take the risk of threatening physical force, how do I manipulate you to do something against your what otherwise would be your will? I lie to you. Lies are a way of getting people to do something they otherwise would not have done right. short of force. And yet you're doing something related you're getting someone, you're, com you're compelling behavior, but you're compelling it not by direct use of force, but by deceiving them about the facts. Now, Nathaniel Brandon lied to Ayn Rand for years about multiple issues. Nathaniel Brandon lied about that relationship with Ayn Rand to the whole world when he broke with Ayn Rand. So now, how does a person hmm, say at that moment, at this very time, as you point out, uh, dishonesty is next to coercion? in its moral reprehensibility and how you treat other people and be lying to his intellectual hero and lover for years and then 
to all his audience about that. Now, how do you explain dishonesty on that scale over that period of time from a guy who's articulating exactly what makes dishonesty so bad? I think it's a lesson in the importance of not only having the right ideas, but living them. <laughs> living the ideas you're preaching. And I'll have to say, I am so glad in a way that there was this break with Ayn Rand, because if Nathaniel Brandon is a case study in psychological and ethical hypocrisy, Ayn Rand's actual heir and intellectual heir, man who became my true mentor and teacher, Leonard Peikoff, is a, perhaps the most honest human being. I've, I mean, he's the the picture next to the dictionary definition of intellectual honesty, always using him, himself as the foil, always using his own error as the example. That would have been unheard of from the Nathaniel Brandon I knew, who was a pompous, unself-critical guy from fr front to start. He uh, really had a hard time when it came to uh, self-criticism. <laughs> well, it's interesting because there's something there that Jim Valiant and Murray Rothbard agree upon. <laughs> he hated Brandon. You know, he he obviously had some bitterness about Ayn Rand, but I could tell that there was still some fondness for Ayn Rand, even in the early 1980s. 20 years after they'd broken, he still had some fondness for Ayn Rand, whereas Nathan, <laughs> Nathan's <laughs> used colorful language when it <laughs> Daniel Brandon. He, really, yeah. he was one of the people who, for, I'll give Murray this much credit. He was one of the first people who put me onto the reality that the problems in the Ayn Rand movement in the early 60s were largely the result of Nathaniel Brandon. But he was a young man, like I say, under a lot of pressure, doing something, a revolutionary thing, where he's trying to explain revolutionary yeah. philosophy by that means. That's a Big task for a young man, however smart. Um, and I think he kind of cracked under the pressure. There's no excuse for dishonesty. And certainly no excuse for years of dishonesty, including public dishonesty, True. when you're preaching honesty to the world. True. So a moral issue, but this is exactly another thing I tell them, Nathaniel Brandon. We don't lack the, the we don't take away the moral dimension when we give a psychological explanation. And and you know what else, Jim? What you just did was practice your ideas. Because when you say he was a young man and you say he was there was immense pressures, is you're keeping the entire context in the forefront of, of your mind. And that I think is one of the biggest lessons any of us can take is always hold context. And like you said, it doesn't absolve him. Right. It's like I say to people, I can understand the behavior without excusing it. Exactly. But dishonesty is dishonesty. It is. It is. If you're it, lying it is. for years and then you lie to the it world is. about it, that's a terrible lie. It is. But it does allow us, I think for me, if I'm in a similar situation, to learn from it and to understand, okay, this is the context. This is one of the dangers of this context. And exactly. be aware and still do the right thing. Jim, this has been an awesome, awesome discussion. Thank you so much for, for having it. And, yeah. uh, you know, we'll continue to have, well, I'll continue to have you on as my regular. It's even been suggested to me, why don't the two of you just have a podcast together? <laughs> Which I'm not opposed to. But, but Jim, thank you so much. Where can people find you, Jim? 
Well, I'm active on social media, not just Facebook anymore. I'm now on X as well. I've seen it. I've seen it. So uh, you can follow me in both of those places. On Facebook, I do answer questions, though, too. Uh, I try to, I'm there almost every day, uh, uh, answering questions about all my work. You can get uh, get me a, get a hold of me through our website for my book on Christianity, www creatingchrist.com you can uh see me on podcasts uh, that are uh, provided produced by the ayn rand center uk um i am one of their most common <laughs> guests as well uh as, as yours and of course they can find me regularly here with you now too <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and as much as i love the the, the uh, arc uk guys our conversations are just better <laughs> don't don't disown me Rosie. <laughs> I, I still understand if he were to say the same exact thing <laughs> and I, I understand what i try to <laughs> well thanks jim for now this is the rational egoist signing out i'm michael Leibowitz. remember let me know what you think until next time